Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton and contributing editor to the Acton Institute, Emily Zanotti. This week, we'll be discussing the awarding of the Nobel Prize in Economics to Claudia Golden and whether or not Bigfoot really exists. But first, uh, I kind of want to go around the world. A little bit of an update here. We discussed on last week's program uh, the slaughter of uh, Jews and Israeli citizens in Israel, which happened last weekend. Here's a little bit of the latest. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has told Israeli soldiers uh, that the next stage of the war against Hamas is coming as Israel has called up 300,000 reservists and moved closer to a large-scale ground invasion of Gaza. Uh, They have advised Palestinian civilians in the region's northern half to evacuate. Uh, Hamas leaders have issued contradictory orders telling civilians to remain in place. Uh, the United States has deployed the USS Gerald R. Ford um, close to and the Eisenhower uh, Carrier Strike Group in the Eastern Mediterranean. That's what's happening on the ground there. But I want to talk today about the reaction to what happened in Israel. And I'm going to walk through uh, just some of the events that happened, uh, some of the places that they happened. So uh, New York City, there were many large purportedly pro-Palestinian protests that happened, even like as soon as the Sunday, the day after um, these the, the uh, Hamas attack in Israel happened. In New York City, uh, that protest earned a rebuke from uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who said, quote, the bigotry and callousness expressed in Times Square on Sunday were unacceptable and harmful in this devastating moment. Uh, There was a protest in Sydney, Australia, where people were chanting, gas the Jews. There was a protest on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, included people chanting, glory to the murderers, and we will liberate the land by any means necessary. At Harvard University, there was a group of about, I think, 39 student organizations that released a group letter uh, expressing, uh, we, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. At Stanford University, a non-faculty instructor has been placed on leave. Uh, this non-faculty instructor apparently asked people in the class who were Jewish to identify themselves uh, and then told those people to go stand in the back of the class and explained, quote, that's what Israel does to the Palestinians. Uh, apparently, this uh, person also asked 
how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust. After one student answered six million, the instructor then said more people have been killed by colonizers and said, quote, Israel is a colonizer. At New York University Law School, the Student Bar Association president, which is basically like the student body president at a law school, released this letter, this newsletter. Let me find it here real quick because there's there's something about it that I just find, I don't know, weirdly amusing. Uh, Message from the president that starts, hi, y'all, and then goes on to say, This week, I want to express, first and foremost, my unwavering and absolute solidarity with Palestinians in their resistance against oppression toward liberation and self-determination. Israel bears full responsibility for this tremendous loss of life. The regime of state-sanctioned violence created the conditions that made resistance necessary. I will not condemn Palestinian resistance. This person... Had uh, who had been a summer associate at Winston and Strawn, a big, big law firm, had their job offer withdrawn, uh, so no longer will have an opportunity to work at Winston and Strawn. And then two other examples here, and then we can discuss any of these uh, or just this in in general. Um, one of them here quite concerning: uh, Star of David graffitied on the homes of Jewish residents in Berlin. A little bit alarming. And then this other one that I found to be kind of fascinating, Mia Khalifa, who is an adult actress, uh, was fired by Playboy for her uh, pro-Palestinian and pro-Hamas statements that she made on X, formerly known as Twitter. And again, amidst all of these universities releasing these statements with just kind of garbled morality and equivocation, it was kind of amazing to me that Playboy, Playboy of all institutions, had a pretty morally clear statement in when their decision to um, fire Mia Khalifa. I'll read a bit of it here. Quote, over the past few days, Mia has made disgusting and reprehensible comments celebrating Hamas's attack on Israel and the murder of innocent men, women, and children. At Playboy, we encourage free expression and constructive political debate, but we have a zero-tolerance policy for hate speech. We expect Mia to understand that her words and actions have consequences. So uh, if you were looking, if you're trying to guess who would have the more morally clear statement, Harvard or Playboy, I don't know what you would have guessed, but the answer turned out to be Playboy. So Dylan, the question I will ask is... You know, I, I consider myself not cynical is not the right word, but um, it takes a lot these days to really shock and surprise me. And I will confess to being pretty shocked by the volume of anti-Semitic expression that we saw over the course of the last week. Was this similarly shocking or surprising to you? Um, I think less so. Uh, I mean, anti-Semitism has always been around. Um, I think in, in recent years, it's getting more vocal, um, in the West in general, uh, where for a long time it's been very quiet. And that's, I think it's worth noting to Germany's credit, it is still illegal to deny the Holocaust there. Um, they, they're very pro, uh, well, they're very, very anti-anti-Semitism is really the way to put it. Um, so I don't, I don't, being uh, German-American, I, I, you know, uh, try to stick up for like 
they they know they got that very very wrong, and uh, they, I actually they, a, they they will forever be trying to make amends for that. I think I actually um, had a very interesting conversation with uh, a friend of mine at uh, a dinner a couple months ago, and she her husband's in the foreign service, and they had lived in in Germany for a number of years. So her children went through German schools, and she was explaining to me like the process of how they teach about the Second World War and the Holocaust, where they kind of begin by. You know, at, at an age-appropriate level, imparting it a bit abstractly um, of kind of like, you know, there were the good guys and there were the bad guys and here's what the bad guys did. And then you get a little further on. It's like, by the way, we were the bad guys, um, which is, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that you know, not that the United States is, you know, no blemishes on its history. There are plenty of things the United States has done that are worthy of being ashamed of, um, but not Holocaust level shame. And it was an interesting to me to hear that recounting of like how you go about introducing the idea of what the country did back, you know, decades ago to young children. I, I found that kind of, yeah. kind of fascinating. So, I mean, they're, they're very, very intentional um, about that. Um, and I, so I will point out just because there's a lot of people in the streets waving flags does not in any way ever mean that those people represent a majority. Um, so I would not extrapolate too much. Um, now, certainly it seems like Harvard uh, has a problem with their student body, um, but I don't know how many student groups does Harvard have. I, I haven't looked it up. Um, maybe 39 is low. Um, so I, I again, I don't want to jump to too many conclusions. Um, but I, I think what we see, so there on the one hand, there is just flat out anti-Semitism at work in some of this stuff. Um, and so that explains some of it. I don't think it's helpful, though. Uh, to just stop there, because that's always a factor. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's just the racism and racial tension and, and prejudice and hatred are a fact of life, and unfortunately, particularly anti-Semitism. Um, but there are also people that are just very, very confused. Um, I mean, that, that Harvard letter saying that Israel was entirely responsible for what happened, I think we like, can't we just start with if you pull a trigger on a gun and someone dies, you are entirely responsible for the person dying. Or if you drop a bomb and people die, you are entirely, you know, and that, that cuts both ways, it turns out. Um, but that, that's something that like it, normal people should be able to agree on. Um, and it's so tragic and messy. Um, you have uh, a lot of people very confused about who the Palestinians are, frankly, um, what Palestine is. Gaza is not Palestine. It's, <laughs> there's some, there's a 2 million Palestinians there, um, but there's also the West Bank. Um, uh, Hamas is a internationally recognized terrorist organization. Uh, the last election they had in Gaza was 2006. It was a legislative election. Hamas won 44%. Uh, next was the PLO, uh, which got like 41%. So it was a close election. And then there was a civil war in 2007, and Hamas kicked out the PLO. So the, the, and there hasn't been an election since. So these are people who have been, uh, you know, basically conquered by an internal terrorist organization um, in this particular region, and they're not even the whole of Palestinians in Palestine. Um, so I think you have you have people saying, you know, the history is messy. They're always kind of... 
um, in some ways, you could say these are the little guys, the underdogs. Uh, you know, we want to support people that feel like they don't have a home or they lost theirs or whatever. And you have all this, certainly in college campuses, concerns over colonialism, as you mentioned, that kind of stuff. But it's very, very misplaced, I think, to just then go and defend an international terrorist organization's actions. Um, There's sort of this, too, like, deep intersectionality that college students and the you know, academia has fostered. Every, every issue where there is a little guy and a big guy and the little guy wants rights, we side with the little guy. And so you have this weird bedfellow situation where you have pro-LGBTQ, pro-transgender, pro-abortion, pro-this, pro-that, and they're also pro-Palestinian. Um, but when they say pro-Palestinian, they're not really looking at the totality of the history coming you know, to this point. And why did Israel pick this particular situation in which to launch a war? Well, because you know, if uh, 1,300 people are dead, uh, in an unprovoked attack. Um, this isn't lobbing missiles back and forth across the border. And people sort of can't make these distinctions in their minds because intersectionality has driven everybody together. Everybody has to support everybody else. Everybody has to be on the side of everybody else. And you see a lot of leftists, a lot of liberals, particularly a lot of Jewish liberals, now all of a sudden saying, um, actually, we are the underdog in this situation, you guys should be supporting us. And that's not happening. They're realizing that everyone's putting hang gliders on their, on their um, flyers for these events. And we have to stand with the people who fought. We have to stand with the fighters. We have to stand with the freedom fighters. Um, all they know is intersectionality. And so they view everything through this lens and that leads them in this direction. But when you have a situation like this, you have to look at it more clearly. You have to look at it in a more detailed way and then determine where you stand. Um, it, it, it's, it's complicated for people who have never faced sort of this good versus evil conundrum in their life. Right. And, and so it, it just gets so complicated if you at all follow it, which is really hard to do. But, uh, you know, Dan is, is fond, our colleague, Dan Huger, is fan, fond of mentioning, and I, I will mention as well, I highly recommend Wikipedia, actually, uh, for, for unfolding news events, especially of, a, you know, crisis international nature like this, where it's developing. Because Wikipedia, despite its bad reputation from 20 years ago, is rigorous about citing sources and confirming that they're not fake news. In fact, identifying fake news and telling you about it. And so you can, there's a timeline so far of this conflict uh, and you can see day by day, you know, what we know to have happened, um, what people have claimed, things like that. Um, and it's just so messy. So a few days ago, uh, I think it was Friday, Israel announced a uh, 24-hour window for people to evacuate, civilians to evacuate North Gaza because they wanted to go in, try to rescue the hostages, try to take out some key Hamas targets. Um, people complained that wasn't long enough, but still, I, I do think it's admirable. They're, they're trying uh, to make a window to protect civilians. Um, that's not to say I approve of everything they've done so far, but I, I think it's very admirable. Um, Hamas set up a blockade to prevent the civilians from getting out of North Gaza. So, um, so again, identifying Hamas with Palestinian civilians seems 
very, very problematic. Like, who's the underdog here? You got one underdog fighting another underdog, oppressing another underdog. That's, I mean, that's that's the situation that we have here, and it's not just a simple matter of we got to pick a side and wave our flag and have our sign and our protest, and we're we feel good about ourselves. We've virtue signaled in the right way again, uh, and that's going to change the world. And you also have a situation where. Israel provides the water, they provide the internet, they provide these things. They've tried to get uh, the Gaza Strip onto its own water system. It sits on top of an aquifer. That's the craziest part, is it has clean water. Um, But then Hamas came in and took all the pipes (laughs) and made them into rocket launchers. And so you have these situations where people are trying to help, they're trying to do something, they're trying to move people forward. And you have an international terrorist organization that's sitting there trying to be in the middle, and deliberately so. They want this confrontation. And you also have other players in this game. Hamas is really a small-time operation. Hezbollah is really a small-time operation. But you have Iran standing behind it, which is saying, go ahead, do this, do this. Goad everybody into this conflict. Put this conflict out into the open because we want to be part of it. and and just like in Syria and in Lebanon previously, you're looking at a proxy war in some respects. So it's not like you can say, I pick this side or I pick that side, because the sides are all muddied when you come at it from sort of a 30,000 foot view. So it's really, really complicated. It's it's not complicated. It's not simple enough. You can just be like, ah, I'm I am always on this side or I'm always on that side. Um the the issue is is global. We we have this tendency to look for the couple things I want to say. <clears throat> this tendency to look for like white hats and black hats in any kind of a situation, and it is to me a function of the entertainmentization of the news and current events. I think we watch a lot of our politics in the same way where we are looking for these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And the problem when you start viewing it through that entertainment kind of lens, if anybody remembers the show and and relevant for this conversation, uh, the Fox program 24 Uh, which is born out of this really concept of how can we tell a story in real time, right? You know, it's actually every minute of the program is a minute in real time. And counterterrorism turned out to be the the most effective way to to tell a story like that. Well, you know, Kiefer Sutherland's character, Jack Bauer, um, he's the good guy. He does a lot of terrible things in the show. He tortures a lot of people. But we see that... And our reaction is to say that, yeah, the bad guy is getting it. So it gets this kind of dopamine reward in our brains to say, you know, the bad things are happening to the bad guy. And we kind of obviate the moral question of like, okay, is this even ethical to begin with? We have this problem of looking at, I think, politics and world events through this lens of like it's a movie. Like, we're going to find the good guys and the bad guys, and the good guys are going to win in the end. To the point of what Emily was talking about, you know, not just a point about intersectionality, but the perpetual narrative of oppressor and the oppressed, when, again, it is just not that simple. Um, you know, the, the only unmitigated bad guys here are Hamas, who are a terrorist organization, who have wantonly murdered you know, more than a thousand people in Israel who desire this conflict. 
Well, this is not to say, however, that you cannot criticize the reaction of Israel. You can't criticize past Israeli policy. Um, for people who are interested in the history of this, uh, last week I recorded, and it'll be coming out on Wednesday, a podcast with uh, uh, my friend Jonathan Greenberg, who's a Middle East uh, policy expert who we've had on the program before. We did a show a couple of years ago about anti-Semitism and why do some people hate the Jews. For this podcast, we walked through really as much of the history as we could. Like how do you get from essentially 2000 BC to now? Uh, so for people who are looking for that kind of thing. But, you know, the the Palestinian people themselves are quite sadly pawns in what is going on here. That is the way that they are treated by Hamas. Um, and yeah, I, you know, you can make the case about Israel um, and its power within the region and having powerful allies around the world, but it is the world's lone Jewish state formed after a uh, world war was fought in conjunction with stopping the attempt to exterminate the Jews from existence. Uh, so to cast them as some kind of just simple oppressor is, again, I just think historically and morally blind. I would note as well, you, what you said about Wikipedia, I agree with. Um, while I am not a fan of a lot of the changes that Elon Musk has made to uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, the community notes part of it is actually quite good. And for a lot of a lot of what is otherwise, you know, would have just passed misinformation that would have passed and, you know, been shared numerous times. The existence now of the community notes to clarify for people that either, you know, this is a photo of a Palestinian child who was being rescued from an earthquake like 10 years ago, not the result of uh, of, of bombing by by Israel. You are going to see horrible things that have happened because of what Israel has done, again, in reaction to what Hamas has done. But I want to come back to the campus part of all of this mm -hmm. and ask the question, is this – we've had over the last number of years a lot of conversations about what is happening on college campuses. And I saw uh, this tweet from Nate Silver, uh, 538 expressing I hear people love his tweets. Uh, oh, they do. They absolutely <laughs> do. Um, and there was a lot of back and forth. So there's this hedge fund uh, leader uh, who had said, basically, I want to know the names of the students who are parts of the, the student organizations who signed on to this letter because I don't want to hire any of them and I don't think anybody else should either. And it provoked this conversation about cancel culture. You know, is this another form of cancel culture? My friend Robbie Suave at Reason made the case that Mia Khalifa's firing was cancel culture. I think he's wrong about that. Um, but again, coming back to the campus part of it, uh, one, I, I do have a problem with the kind of infantilizing of college students, that particularly the ones that we were talking about who were law school students. You know, like we're not talking about 17 or 18 year olds here. We're talking about people who are in their mid 20s. And I think if you're looking at going into a career as a lawyer, um, you should take a little bit more care in your associations and the people who speak for you. And if you want to dissent from that, a lot of people have decided that, you know, I want no part of this. I don't know if that's because it's blowing up in their face or if they actually have those moral convictions. But, you know, I will take them at their word that they are, you know, abhorred by what this New York University Law School Student Bar Association president wrote. 
uh, Nate Silver's comment was, we should care a whole lot less about what, you know, young people at Ivy League schools think. And on one hand, I understand the point that he's making there. On the other hand, if graduates of those institutions didn't disproportionately populate our most important institutions, maybe I would be a little less concerned about what they believe now. But the willingness to sign on to statements like this that are just obviously, to me, morally wrong and redolent of anti-Semitism is not a good signal coming out of academia. You know, is it, do, do you think that this in any way adds fuel to the case that these have just become, these elite universities especially, are these far left hothouses where you have you know, the curated selection of the type of activist students, you know, people who have some form of activism on their resume are probably probably disproportionately more likely to be accepted to these elite universities you know, beyond the typical legacies and all that kind of stuff. But they're they're looking for a lot of this kind of performative activism as a quality that they use to select students. And then the faculty of them, I mean, people on the right have been making that case for years that the faculties of universities are, you know, basically uh, span from the left to the far left. And now we're seeing all this kind of stuff. Now, look, look we can come back to the problem of anti-Semitism on the right. We've talked about it a lot in the last 10 years, and we saw a lot of it online over the course of the last week. Horseshoe theory does seem to be a real thing. Um but Dylan, what what is your impression of elite academia? Do you think that this is a problem particular to them, or are am I overmaking the case that this is a problem in academia to, to begin with? Um, well, extreme views are going to be more common in academia by virtue of academic freedom, especially in the case of tenured professors. That is the whole point of tenure. Um, you tolerate extreme views because sometimes they are needed. Um, there was a time, um, so on, very much on the subject, a time about a hundred years ago when eugenics was considered a science. And it took people challenging and accepted science to bring this down. It also took, you know, World War II and the Holocaust and, you know, really, really terrible, you know, consequences of this. Um, so look, this is, this is just part of the nature of freedom. Um, now, I'm sure a lot of my conservative listeners would be like, you, are you trying to call universities uh, free places? No, I'm not saying that it's this great place for freedom. In fact, there's recent, um, there's recent data on how students feel in terms of expressing differing views. I can't remember the organization. Maybe we'll look it up afterwards. There um, is a ranking but from- Harvard, Harvard was like rock bottom. That's fire. Yeah. Um, Foundation yeah. for Individual yeah, yeah, yeah. Rights and Expression. Um, so, I mean, there's people, they're, comf they're feeling, feel how comfortable they feel expressing views even on a single issue where they feel like they don't go along with the majority you know view um harvard was like rock bottom so that tells you something about the climate there that also means there's actually a lot of people who aren't speaking up but they just don't feel comfortable um but that said uh, as far as the law students in particular um 
I, I really like lawyers. Uh, I realize that makes me kind of uh, oddball, but I don't I don't necessarily mean like in the courtroom. Uh, I haven't had a lot of experience with that. I mean, I like lawyers as people. Uh, if they invite you to their house for a party, go. You'll have a great time. Uh, they are just wonderful people. They love to talk. Uh, they love to argue, but it's all like in good fun. But whether you learn in law school, and maybe, you know, Emily can add more. What you learn in law school is how to argue well. Although I wouldn't say that his letter was argued well, but you learn how to argue well. You don't necessarily learn anything about morality. Um, you should, but that doesn't mean that you do. Um, <laughs> I had ethics and law because I went to Ave Maria, but um, right at Harvard, probably you not. Know, Harvard probably doesn't have the same, you know, level of scrutiny <laughs> over right. ethics. One thing that keeps getting me is, you know, as somebody who's been through this system um, and doesn't practice, is the idea that some of these students who are essentially professional activists throughout their career, number one, when do they have time? Harvard must not be extremely um, hard because <laughs> I did not have time. I did not have time. I did not, like, I did not have time for professional activism until at least my third year. Um, the second thing is, they're going into these white collar law jobs. These are $250,000 a year jobs defending corporations, mostly against the government. And so it's like, it's kind of hilarious to see that juxtaposition. You're on the streets with a bullhorn screaming about the oppressed. And then you're going to your summer internship at some white shoe law firm where everybody makes a million dollars and has six houses and nobody cares about yeah, they're, climate change. They're, they're activists in the streets and uh, corporate slaves in the sheets. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, so I will say as far as the prominence of Ivy Leagues in institutions such as these law firms or whatever, um, you could look at that and say, oh man, they must all be, you know, we, we should worry about how's it going to be. I, from an economic point of view, think the opposite is they must be really easy to find, right? If you want an Ivy League lawyer, must not be hard to find someone with that degree, in which case these companies can be picky. So the person who's not actually studying and they're being a professional activist and they come out and they don't, they can't actually pass the bar or they can, you know, whatever, they're, they're a terrible lawyer. They're not going to get this job. They're not going to keep these jobs. It um, doesn't mean no people with bad opinions are going to, but they actually have to have some competence in their field. Um, so I, I don't think we should judge the whole. And the other thing I was going to say is even in your early twenties, I, even smart people can be dumb. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be consequences for people's actions or anything like that. I'm not trying to do like an anti-cancel or pro-cancel sort of statement, but just like people can grow up and sometimes you're still growing up in your early 20s. Um, and if if all you've ever known is elite, you know, institutions and whatever, maybe you haven't faced much, very much real life yet. Um, that's usually what it takes to actually grow up. Um, so this is part um, and parcel of why. As somebody who once engaged in youth politics, I now have very strong opinions of disliking youth politics because it is an irrefutable fact of life that we are born into this world completely ignorant and we only get less so as we get less young. So the idea that, you know, by virtue of youth, you have something unique to offer to some kind of a conversation, again, unless the conversation is about 
the relative different views between younger people and older people. It, it is just the laziest form of identity politics. You know, I, I can fully accept that I will never understand what it is like to be a black woman or a trans man or anything like that. I can, I can accept that. I was young once, and I do remember what it was like to be young once. And I have, have tried, especially as I have come across, and we've had these conversations about like the new right, as I've come across a lot of the disproportionately younger people, you know, not that I want to think of myself at 41 years old as being, you know, uh, an elder statesman of these kind of movements or anything like that, but I've just kind of tried to advise them. Uh, I don't know how forcefully you want to be out and about with your opinions on things at 23 years old, because let me tell you, 23-year-old Eric believed some crazier things than 41-year-old Eric does. You know, like I actually was like, hey, you know, maybe anarcho-capitalism is a thing that could work out. And like, eh, no, probably not. Um, there's almost nothing throughout history that suggests that uh, that would be enough to knit society together. There are more important, there are other important things that need to be included. And it is viewed from that fervency of youth as, you know, you kind of become a sellout and you moderate over time. Um, you know, as I've trended towards kind of a you know, first generation neoconservative understanding of my own approach to a lot of these things that I'm an ameliorist. My goal is to make things slightly less crappy over time. And I really don't have a lot more aggressive goals than that because I just, A, don't think it's likely to be accomplished. And the only way you could possibly go about accomplishing it is, you know, breaking so many eggs that you start to turn into a tyrant yourself in order to reform things along the lines that you would like to see. So, you know, the, the, the better advice for people who are college students is to be a college student, is to learn the things that you are supposed to learn, is to, you know, master what you have put in front of you, do good in your classes, and your opinions and understanding will evolve over time. But this also kind of gets into a weird area, too, where we're going to have to have this reckoning at some point in the near future as more... I think millennials and especially the older Gen Zers start moving into uh, the age where they will become politicians and candidates for office. There's a paper trail. I say paper, a pixel trail for these people much, much longer than anybody who came before them ever had to deal with. And I, I think you're going to at some point have to have some kind of a detente about crazy radical opinions that were expressed online when people were younger. The difference isn't that people 40 years ago didn't express those same kinds of opinions. There's just much less of a record of it. And we're going to find need to find a way to reckon with that. What you're seeing here, too, is also a market reaction. Like these people have been going into these jobs for years. It's not something new that people are showing up at pro-Palestinian rallies or pro-choice rallies or pro-transgender. These same professional activists at 23 are have almost always been the first year associates at some of these big law firms. And it's not like HR companies don't do searches now on your social media. They know exactly the type of person they're getting. And to some extent, they believe that that person makes a good fit for their law firm. And that's absolutely fine. Go for it. Um, what's happening now is that everybody kind of took it a step too far. So you have before October 7th and after October 7th. And before October 7th, it was one thing to be pro-Palestinian, pro-this, pro-that. 
what happened on October 7th was broadcast live to the whole world. Another impact of the digital era, right? So every, they had GoPro cameras as they're massacring Israelis on kibbutzes. And you can see it all in real time. If you really, really, really want to torture yourself, you can go on any sort of, you know, Telegram, any of these um, social media platforms and find these live videos. And so what was covered up what was sort of hush-hush, what was sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge is now all out in the open. We know what these organizations do. We know what Hamas does. We know what these these rallies then become. Um, and so I think a lot of these law firms then now have corporate clients who are coming out with statements that say, we stand with Israel, We and they have to rethink the fact that they are hiring some of these people. So their names come out and they're being hired at this such and such law firm. Well, that law firm's clients call and say, holy, you're you're hiring this person who just called for the destruction of Israel on the streets of New York City. Um, and they have to revoke that job offer. Um, even Playboy. Yes, Playboy did a very you know tight statement, but at the same time, they sell a product that it really doesn't matter what your political background is, you're probably consuming that product. I mean, not me, but I'm sure that there are lots of people who consume that product. And so, um, and so Playboy needs to be unequivocal because Playboy needs to keep the people buying their creepy videos. So it's, it's kind of, it's a market force right now. And then a week from now, two weeks from now, when those people fade from a, into oblivion, is it really going to matter? I don't know. So there, the the if impact of this sort of wave of cancel culture may not be more than a couple of weeks. Um, it's just this is the environment and the climate right now. And, and some people are going to lose their jobs, unfortunately, just because they said things in public at the wrong time. So I did want to briefly mention some of the administrative responses here. You mentioned there was a professor put on leave um, at Harvard. He's not on the administration anymore, but Larry Summers, uh, the economist, uh, a former president of Harvard, Harvard and uh, nephew of two Nobel laureates in economics, uh, came out very strongly against uh, this student statement. Um the whatever president it was that had the hey y'all letter i wonder if they just left like chat gpt and wild west creative mode or something <laughs> like that um i mean you know a lot of this is is boilerplate kind of stuff too um yes that's a good but, point you know just what can we do to try to take the attention away from ourselves and we're going to move on taking yeah, I, government money and not delivering educations to people. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, I, I want to move on to our second topic, but I want to make one more point that if we could get one good development out of all of this that, that we have been discussing, I think one of those things would be the end of the view that it is necessary if you are a corporation or you are a university that when events happen in the country or around the world, you're expected to release some kind of a statement about what has transpired. Yeah, the job don't. of, you know, Apple computer 
is to make really awesome computing devices, not to have a position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The job of Harvard University is to impart a great education to the students in its charge, not as an institution to have a position on everything that happens in the country or in the world. We have lived for a while now with this expectation that, you know, it would, which is also kind of funny considering the context of what we've been talking about, that, you know, these were places that we were told, um, you know, silence is violence, uh, that we were told that, um, you know, words have the power to, uh, to harm. Um, and a lot of these places, the, the pressure existed to release a statement and to take a position on all of these things. The appropriate thing for Almost all of them to do unless they are somehow directly implicated in what has gone on in the country, in the world, is to not say anything about it. You are a university. You are a company. Do your job. Stay in your lane. And I hope more of them start to realize that the downside of, you know, it, if you want an example of what it looks like when you have the track record of having released an, uh, an opinion and a statement on just about everything and contorting yourself to try to say whatever you need to say to make this whole thing go away, um, look at uh, my friend Guy Benson uh, from Town Hall and Fox News, uh, his documentation of Northwestern University, of which he is an alum, of the multiple statements that their president has had to release because his attempt to say something and at the same time say nothing, unsurprisingly, was pleasing to absolutely nobody. When on one hand, the, appropriate, the most appropriate thing to do, and at some point you have to start doing the right thing, would be to not say anything. Um, but it is not surprising when you have this track record of having released a statement on January 6th on everything that has happened in this country that people, when a whole bunch of Israeli Jews are murdered by a terrorist organization, are going to look at you and expect a statement coming about it. Uh, at some point, we have to start moving beyond this. These institutions need to understand from an institutional perspective, um, the, the great advice from Yuval Levin about individuals within institutions, they should all be asking themselves, given my role here, what should I do? And in more cases than not, what you should do is keep on with the work of your institution and not try to make your institution or your role in that institution a platform to share your views on everything that goes on in the world. That is a perfect transition to talking about Claudia Goldman. I think it is as well. Harvard professor of economics. Harvard professor for, of ahead. economics. Uh, Harvard's Claudia Golden is the newest Nobel laureate in economics. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit here from the piece that uh, Victor Klar and Angela Dills published at Religion and Liberty Online. Uh, we will we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Golan's body of work is impressive. It has helped us to understand the mix of cultural, social, and market-based forces that drive labor market outcomes for women, including their participation, wages, and decisions regarding whether and when to have children. 
Perhaps most impressive of all, though, is Golden's commitment to high-quality research. While she's careful in her descriptions and analysis of labor market dynamics as they relate to women, she rarely takes a position on how to change these dynamics if you don't like them. And we like that about Golden. She's an academic researcher to her core. Again, a perfect example of what we were just talking about of someone staying in their lane. I can uh, expand here on uh, some of her work, but um, you know, Dylan, thoughts that uh, you have on Claudia Golden being the recipient of the Nobel Prize in economics. Oh, so I mean, I I'm very I'm not like super familiar with her work. I you know I've read through some abstracts at this point because I you know just found out she won last week like everybody else. Um, so. Um, but I, I would I would concur uh, with uh, Victor Clare and, and Angela Dill's uh, assessment that, that this is something that really, really, really deserves to be rewarded and highlighted um, as an academic. Uh, I think it's so, so important to acknowledge people who just I mean, she's she's been doing research for 50 years now or close to that. Um, and it's just this strict academic history, you know, economic history, this academic work. She's publishing in, you know, peer-reviewed journals, that sort of thing. And uh, it's very hard uh, when your job is my job uh, to explain to people why it matters. Um, but this work she does really does matter. And she doesn't have to be the one to explain it. She understands that truth is valuable for itself, and she has pursued it, and she has helped us understand it uh, in amazing ways. She's shown that, uh, you know, as they mentioned in that article, uh, you know, women's labor force partic participation historically has been much higher, in some cases three times higher than previously estimated um, because of simple things like uh, on, you know, surveys and census and, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, when women are asked, what's your profession? They just write wife. But they, in fact, were managing a family business or, you know, working alongside their husbands on the farm or, you know, or whatever. Um, and it's just complicated. And throughout every era, there's been inequalities and discrepancies. But she notes them and she tries to get at their causes without making a judgment. Not to say that no judgments should be made, but that what she has to offer in a very kind of Milton Friedman sense is her positive analysis. That is her contribution. And it's so, so important to actually understand the facts of the matter. Um, it's so important to have people in a world uh, full of just this frenzy for I want to be on the right side of history, to have people that just want to know history. Um, and they want to tell it to other people and that want to do it very well. Um, so I absolutely commend her for that. And I think it is, it is a commendation to all good academics who just care about doing good work in their discipline, um, that it does matter that you can do 50 years of that work. Um, and most of those people are not getting the Nobel prize. They're not going to get any kind of acknowledgement, but it is worth it. Um, it will make the world a better place. And I think her work will make the world a better place. So I think it's a very, very good choice, uh, this year. Except a little bit more from the uh, piece here at Re Re Religion and Liberty Online. Uh, what are the insights we'd be missing in the absence of her prize-winning research? For starters, though we tend to think of female participation in the labor force as a relatively recent phenomenon, driven at least in part by artificial contraception, the equal rights movement, and greater access to higher education, it was quite high for much of human history, mainly out of necessity. By examining sources such as time use surveys, census data, and industrial statistics, Golden pieced together evidence that the fraction of women participating in the labor force was much larger at the end of the 1890s than had previously been thought. 
Moreover, this phenomenon seems to stretch back as far as the late 1700s. For at least a century, many women participated in the labor force, yet this fact was missed when many census and other public documents listed wife as married woman's primary occupation. While they were certainly wives, they also labored at tasks beyond what economic, uh, economists might refer to as domestic production. This is what you were highlighting, Dylan. Um, so uh, one of Golden's many striking findings, the employment rate for married women at the close of the 19th century was nearly three times greater than previous estimates indicated. Uh, so, you know, Emily, this takes, you know, uh, it, it, somebody as somebody like you, I see commenting often on uh, a lot of the online discourse about uh, women's roles within households and within the labor force uh, certainly does give lie to some people's ideas of what women's roles used to be, uh, that they were more and greater participants in economic life than were previously thought. And we know that largely thanks to her research. Yeah. And we've often seen, especially in the last two or three years, as this, you know, trad tradism has developed um the idea that women should take on primarily or only domestic roles that you know it should be in the home cooking cleaning homeschooling children um those were all things that women have done yes throughout history um but we sort of knew intellectually um prior to this report we knew sort of intellectually that women were ultimately making the wheels of commerce go um, for most of human history because they were the ones that were managing the homes. They were often managing the family farms. They were keeping the books. Um, it's just this sort of little slice of post-war America that looks a very specific way. But we also know that women in that post-war era were not particularly happy with the way that they were portrayed or the way that they were forced to forego jobs that they'd taken during World War II. Um, and so this, this report is really fascinating because it really does show the contributions of women who did not themselves fill out these reports or these um, these census data sheets. You know, they the, their husbands would have filled it out. And what's her primary duty? Where her primary duty is wife. But what does wife entail? And now... Um, because of Claudia, we have all of this information as to what it meant to be a wife at the end of the 17th and 18th centuries. And it, it was a hard job and it went one really went unheralded. And, and the problem isn't that we've sort of left the domestic role um, as women, but that we've now gotten some recognition for all of the things that we do. And we owe that to um, women throughout history. It reminded me a little bit of uh, in the Bible, Proverbs 31. There's uh, uh, King Lemuel's mother's advice to him for how to find a good wife. And the entire description is basically she's a good businesswoman. <laughs> um, uh, and I mean, you know, you want a traditional understanding of women in the workforce, how much more traditional than that? Um, and, and, it's, and it looks a lot like uh, what you know, Golden has uncovered in her research um, that it, it's just not a simple matter of, oh, stay home and make dinner and take care of the kids and whatever. Um, these are very competent, um, very active, economically important people all throughout history and, and including recent history in our own country. Um, and I mean, she, her work even spans beyond this. I, you know, I noticed a decent amount on education. Uh, one of her earliest articles was actually on um, emancipation, um, looking at slavery and how that 
differed in different contexts. So this is someone who, even beyond what she's being recognized for, has made some really uh, fascinating and important contributions. So um, this is great because it means in years to come, people will pay more attention to our work um, and it's all out there for people to find. Um, so I'm sure we'll be hearing more and more about, you know, what she's, she's, uh, done for our understanding of, of economic history, you know, women in particular, but all sorts of areas. I'll close this with, uh, again, to echo what I said at the end of the last segment, this again from the, uh, Victor Clar and Cla uh, Angela Dill's piece that we published at Religion and Liberty Online. While we admire Golden's steadfast work in this area, we also appreciate the fact that she avoids the temptation to step into the role of policy advocate. Golden is a serious economist who asks great questions, finds data where no one else can, and follows the trail wherever it leads. She's not looking for any, quote, right answers. She's merely trying to understand the world better. And a good example of that, you know, staying in your lane. There is nothing wrong with staying in your lane, especially when you have an expertise. Um, there's a lot of damage that has been done in recent years by people trying to borrow on their expertise from one area to project credibility and expertise in another area. I think we can be thankful for the example we have in Claudia Golden of somebody who has expertise in an area and focuses on that rather than trying to leverage it into uh, impact in other areas. Let's move to our final topic of the day. And for that, we're going to go to Colorado. A couple vacationing in Colorado think they captured video evidence to prove once and for all that Bigfoot creatures do indeed walk among us. Shannon and Stetson Parker had been scanning the mountains for elk during a sightseeing railway tour this week in southwest Colorado when they saw something else instead. Their walking among the tall grass and rolling landscape was what appeared to be a tall, furry brown creature. It didn't take much for the Parkers to conclude what it was they were seeing. Quote, Stetson sees something moving and then says, I think it's Bigfoot. Shannon scrambled to snap some photos of the beast while the man sitting next to her and her husband recorded a video of the figure as it crouched down amid the brush. Dylan, is Bigfoot real? Oh, well, it depends on what you mean by real. <laughs> Bigfoot um, is in all of our hearts. It's yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, there's something fun about it. Um, I There are probably people out there who really think Bigfoot is real. There's basically no evidence. I, I hate to be the naysayer. I'm like the the record store guy in the the video is right there, um, Dylan. It's right there. Oh yeah, sure. Yes, I saw a guy in a Bigfoot costume kneel down <laughs> in a field. Um, in fact, there's a, a was Sasquatch uh, camping organization, something like that. This is it's a marketing ploy. There's a, a picture of the guy at the store wearing the exact uh, Sasquatch outfit. I'll um, note as well that uh, quite really the next paragraph of this USA Today article. Uh, the alleged sighting of the elusive uh, cryptid took place Sunday as Shannon and Stetson Parker were taking a train ride through the San Juan Mountains on the way to Durango from Silverton. Uh, this is the Durango-Silverton Railway. I've actually taken this trip twice uh, with my family vacationing in Colorado. It's super cool. I highly recommend it for people because it, I believe it to be the only remaining coal-powered passenger locomotive in the country. And you can take this trip, 
that basically takes a day from Durango down to Silverton, which is basically a tourist trap. You spend a little time in Silverton, you take it back. But it's gorgeous, and it is just incredibly cool to be, like, on a coal-powered locomotive, like the way that these trains used to run. But I say that to say... If you are somebody in a Bigfoot costume looking to create stories like this, you know where the train's passing by. It, oh, it just so happens that you saw it from the window of the train. You know, I, I sound like the end of like 12 Angry Men here. Like, could you really see it in the window of the train moving it? That's I'm just saying, like, you know, if, if you were trying to create the hoax like this, well, you knew where people were going to be going by. Um, so there's people want to believe in the fantastic. And I think that's. A good thing. Um, I do believe there are miraculous things in this world. I don't think Bigfoot is one of them. Uh, But I do think that, you know, for the sincere, true believers out there, this is coming um, from something real, Um, even though I don't agree with their understanding of where they're finding it. Um, On the other hand, you know, some of it's a marketing ploy. Some of it is just people pulling pranks. Uh, There's a great story that's worth linking to. Uh, Daniel Silliman, who's a uh, news editor at Christianity Today it was former. He went to college uh, with Dan Huger here, and so Dan uh, informed us of this article he wrote in his early journalism career on uh, these two guys. Uh, I can't remember where down south somewhere. I want to say Kentucky or Tennessee, um, who claimed to have found uh, a shot and like killed a Bigfoot. So they had the body right, and they they amped it up. They got a promoter, and it just like it snowballed and snowballed and snow. And it, you know the whole piece begins with you know it started as a joke, right? Yeah. <laughs> It yeah. just got out of hand where eventually they're like pulling the Bigfoot costume out of the freezer trying to claim that this is this is it. And, um, it, you know, you can go too far. Uh, even even a silly good joke can go too far. Um, but uh, this, I think, is just kind of a good hearted, fun marketing. I do want to point out that years ago I went to the Bigfoot Museum, which is somewhere between Crater Lake, Oregon and um, Central California. We went on a road trip through the mountains. Um, and I came out of the Bigfoot Museum believing less in Bigfoot <laughs> where possible than when I went in because I was just like, they have the footprints, right? That they've done these plaster casts of the footprints, but it looks like a child traced their foot. <laughs> and then they used like little tennis balls or something as the toes. And I was like, this is not, this is not a footprint of a thing this is just something you made out of plaster and i i was sorely disappointed because i wanted to go into the bigfoot museum and be absolutely blown away um but also you know if bigfoot did exist today he would probably be a tiktok influencer and make a ton of money and i just can't see him like living in the living in the um uh, the woods of oregon yeah so, I, I have an injury i'll uh i'll, I'll note that you know, I, I I agree with a lot of what you know, you both have said, and uh, I, I particularly like Emily's story there of you know going to the museum for this thing and coming away being like, nah, y'all got it wrong. Um, the uh, I I'd been straining to remember where I remember hearing the story from. It was from uh, our friend Mike Cosper's Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, where he opened one of the episodes talking about the Cottingley fairies. Uh, which is a story from uh, England in 1917 of these young girls uh, in a series of five photographs taken by one of them. They look to be posing with little fairies. And again, people's desire 
to believe, who want to. We're, we're all of us, inside all of us, there's a little bit of Fox Mulder and there's a little bit of Dana Scully, right? There's a little bit of I want to believe. Take that, Freud. And there's a, <laughs> there's a little bit of the, yeah, but this is also crazy and illogical and not likely to happen. Now, this, of course, the Cottingly Fairies thing was was faked. And, uh, but, you know, the, the number of people who looked at it were just, you know, so utterly convinced that this must be true. You know, the power of belief is is an incredible thing. So while it's, you know, it people should continue to look for wonder in the world, they probably just shouldn't be looking for it from the window of the Durango-Silverton train and for Bigfoot. Our story is also really powerful. Like, uh, there's a great book called Ghostland that you can pick up. It's Halloween oriented, but it's basically it will ruin all of the wonderful um, ghost stories that you hear as you go around. Those morality—they're initially they were morality tales. So, like the Winchester Mystery House, not really a mystery house. Um, these horrible stories that you hear on the ghost tours in New Orleans actually, you know, started as morality tales. The stupid bell witch that I thought was for real here in Tennessee, like it inspired uh, the Blair Witch Project ages ago. We went up to see the Blair Witch and the Blair Witch Festival. And it was like a morality tale about um, taking care of your family. And this, this, you know, Protestant minister wanted to teach everybody a lesson. And now I have to go to this thing every year. So... Don't go through everything you hear, and I'm always really disappointed because I am probably way more Fox Mulder than Dana Scully. I'm like, I want to know, I want to believe, and it always, I always end up disappointed. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Emily. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.